So it is good to be with you guys this morning. Um, this year, we have been working our way through the Gospel of Matthew together. And uh, if, you have been, if you have been with us since the beginning, what you know is that the Gospel of Matthew, the main theme, the, the overarching premise, the thing that kind of ties the whole book together, the point that Matthew is trying to make is that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is the long-awaited king that God had promised in the Old Testament that would come and usher in God's heavenly kingdom on earth. See, Jesus is the, the king that God promised would come to set all things right and to usher in his kingly rule and reign once and for all. And Matthew, from the beginning to the end, his whole point is that Jesus is this king. He is the king that God has promised. And last week in chapter 16, we saw for the very first time, the disciples were beginning to see clearly who Jesus was. And at the end of chapter 16, Jesus asked Peter, he says, who do you say that I am? And Peter responds in uh, chapter 16, verse 21, he says, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Last week, my friend Scott Sterner was here uh, from Madison preaching on that passage, and he talked about the incredible significance of those words that Peter uttered. It was the, the very first time that human lips had ever articulated the reality of who Jesus was, that he was the Messiah, that he had come to save But in spite of all this incredible revelation, in spite of them finally understanding who Jesus really is, what we're going to see this morning as we continue our study in Matthew is that even though they understand who Jesus is, what is very clear is the disciples still have no idea what Jesus has really come to do, and they don't understand what that means for what it means to follow him. You see, Jesus is the Messiah. He is the anointed king that God promised would come to save his people and to usher in his his kingdom on earth. He's just not the kind of king that anyone was expecting. You see, the Israelites, they were desperately hoping for a king who would, who would rescue them from their political, uh, their political issues. He was, they were looking for a king who would come and overthrow the Roman government and who had conquered and oppressed them. And they were looking for a Messiah who would come to set their situations right. You see, but that's not what Jesus had come to do. See, Jesus had not come to conquer Rome or to establish an earthly kingdom. He came to conquer an even greater enemy and to establish a heavenly kingdom that would never fade. You see, Jesus had not come to set their situations right. See, Jesus had come to set them right. And the way that he was going to do it, the, the path for this glorious rescue, was not just one that nobody expected. It was one that no one wanted. You see, and see, Jesus knows that. He knew that he was not the Messiah that people were expecting. He knew that he was not the Messiah that people were wanting. But he, you see, he had not come to do what they wanted him to do. He'd come to do what they needed him to do. And so in our passage this morning, just moments after Peter has confessed that Jesus is the Messiah, that, that he is the long-awaited king that God had promised would come, What we're going to see Jesus doing this morning is clarifying for the disciples the kind of Messiah that he is, the kind of king that he has come to be, and what it means for those who would follow him. See, as we study this morning, we're going to see Matthew highlighting for us that Jesus, the Messiah, that he is indeed the promised king of glory, but he is also the promised suffering servant. And it's important for us this morning, the degree to which we see him as both of those things, the degree to which we see him as the promised king of glory and the suffering servant will be the degree to which you understand and embrace what it really means to follow him. You see, the degree to which we see him as both of those things will be the degree to which you understand and embrace what it actually means to follow him. 
You see, the, the truth is, David Platt, he says it this way, we become like what we behold. I don't know if you have kids. Kids imitate their parents all the time. Emma has started recently, she started saying my bad all the time when she makes a mistake. That's something Hannah says. So when Emma starts walking around, she's like, makes it, she like falls down or does something. She's like, my bad. That's something that Hannah says. That's something, that's where she gets that. This, this past winter, I was uh, snow blowing the driveway. And uh, before I could turn around, my son Caleb had gotten out his toy lawnmower and was pushing it in the empty path behind the snow plow, right, behind, behind me. You see, but it's not just in parenting, it's in so many different areas of our life. You see, the more we study someone, the more that we listen to someone, the more that we, that we watch someone, whether that's at home or, or in sports or in entertainment or in politics or at work or wherever it might be, the, the, more that we, the more that we look and watch people, the more we begin to emulate those people that we esteem, the things that we look to. You see, and the same is true of God. When we behold him, when we see him, when we esteem him, begin to become more and more like him. And so our passage this morning, Matthew's inviting us to behold Jesus, to see him, to see him for who he really is, to see him as the glorious king and as the suffering servant that he is, so that in beholding him, in seeing him, we might become more and more like him. So to that end, let's pray, and we'll dive into our passage this morning. King Jesus, we just come before you this morning, and we say we really need you. God, I don't have what I need on my own to preach and teach rightly with power. God, only you can do that through me. And so, God, I ask humbly that you might do it. You might fill me with your spirit so that our time here together is, is fruitful and good. God, I need you, we need you to make our hearts able to respond to your word this morning and to, and to receive it and to be corrected by it and to be shaped and directed by it. And so, God, we just come with a humble dependence on you this morning, asking that you would graciously meet us as we study your word. God, we really... We really need you. We ask that for our good and for your glory, you would do that. In your good name we pray. Amen. Well, we're in Matthew chapter 16 into 17 this morning. Beginning in Matthew 16, 21, reads this way. And from that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. You see, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. And Jesus turned and he said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. You see, then Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. See, for whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. And so what good will it be for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? For the Son of Man is coming in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what they have done. For truly I tell you, some of you who are standing here will not taste death before you see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, the brother of James, and he led them up a high mountain by themselves. There he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun. His clothes became as white as the light. And just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, is it, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will put up three shelters, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. And while he was still speaking, a bright cloud covered them. And a voice from the cloud said, this is my son whom I love. And with him I am well pleased 
Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground, terrified. But Jesus came and he touched them. Get up, he said. Don't be afraid. And when he looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus instructed them, Don't tell anyone what you have seen until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. The disciples asked him, Why then did the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? When Jesus replied, To be sure Elijah comes and will restore things, but I tell you, Elijah has already come. And they did not recognize him, but you have done to him and have done to him everything they wish. And in the same way, the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Then disciples understood that he was talking about to them about John the Baptist. It's the word of the Lord. Now this morning as we study, there is so much incredibly cool stuff that I want to show you. There's so much that we're not even going to have time to get to this morning. But what I want to do is I want to start in chapter 17, verse 5, because I think it really provides a framework for us for understanding the significance and the implications of, of what's going on throughout the passage as a whole. You see, Peter and James and John, they're up on this mountain with Jesus, and some pretty crazy stuff is happening, right? Jesus is glowing, uh, he's talking with dead guys, there's this giant cloud that happens, and it all culminates in chapter 17, verse 5, it says, where they're enveloped with this bright cloud, and the voice of God rings out, it says, this is my son, whom I love, and with him I am well pleased, so listen to him. Now, if you've been with us since the beginning of our study in Matthew, those words might sound familiar to you. In fact, they're the same words that the Father speaks over Jesus at his baptism in chapter 3. And there's a lot going on in these few short words, and there's, there's much that we could get into, but the most important thing that I want you to see this morning, the most important thing that you understand that these words are picking up this morning is that the Father's words about Jesus, they're picking up language from two Old Testament passages, from Psalm chapter 2 and Isaiah 42. And both of these are Old Testament passage, and they have messianic overtones, which means they're, they're foreshadowings about the, who the Messiah would be and what he would be like. And so they're, they're pictures of their prophecies about what would come And so in pulling together these two passages, in Psalm chapter 2, it alluded to the divine glory of the triumphant messianic king who would be called God's beloved son. And in Isaiah 42, it foreshadowed the Messiah as a humble, suffering servant into whose hands the the Father was well pleased to place his mission of bringing salvation to the nations. And so Matthew, he's pulling these two things together, and what we see is that he's showing us the kind of Messiah that Jesus has come to be. You see, he is the glorious divine king of Psalm chapter 2, but the triumphant victory that he's going to win for his people isn't going to come by power, it isn't going to come through a throne. It's going to come by humble service and sacrificial suffering and a cross. You see, even though the Old Testament foreshadowed this kind of a Messiah, no one expected it. No one was looking for that kind of a king. Which is why, chapter, which is why verse 5 ends, listen to him. You see, the Father's voice, it interrupts Peter's babbling. In the accounts in Mark and Luke, we see, it says in quotes, Peter didn't know what he was saying. He was just babbling, right? See, the Father interrupts Peter. And he's telling him, stop talking. You need to listen here. See, don't miss what Jesus is trying to tell you about who he is, about what he has come to do. You see, you must listen to him. He's saying, behold him, see him, look at him, see what he is telling you about who he is. 
And so as we study this morning, we want to take a look at these two aspects of Jesus' messianic identity that we see highlighted in our passage. Let's behold him let's, so that we might understand and embrace what it actually means to follow him. And so if we want to actually understand and embrace what it means to follow Jesus, the first thing that we need to do is we need to behold his divine glory. You see, this whole scene with the cloud and God's voice speaking, it begins by Jesus, with Jesus starting to, uh, taking three of his closest disciples up on this high mountain. In verse 2 it says, he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, his clothes became white as light. Moses and Elijah are there speaking with Jesus. And this whole scene, it, it has incredible similarities to the encounter that Moses has with God on, the, on Mount Sinai. In, in Exodus chapters 24 and again in 33 and 34, we see God comes down on Mount Sinai in a cloud. And the voice of God speaks out and everyone is afraid. And Moses went up to the top of the mountain and he begs to see God's glory. And while he isn't able to see God's glory directly, even getting near it enough to it makes his face shine with the reflected glory of God. And so here we are again, centuries later on top of another mountain, and there's glory that's happening. You see, but what is so important this morning that you see is that the glory in Moses' day was one that was reflected. But here in Matthew 17, we see Jesus is radiating the glory of God himself. You see that word transfigured, it's, it's the same, it's where we get our English word metamorphosis. Metamorphosis is, is the idea of a change on the outside that comes from something happening on the inside. Like when a butterfly, right, is in a cocoon or a caterpillar is in a cocoon, it becomes a butterfly, right? Is there something inwardly changing, inwardly being revealed that, ex, that eventually ex, uh, externally gets revealed? You see the transfiguration of Jesus, what's happening is we're getting a glimpse of Jesus' true inner nature. We're getting a glimpse of his divine glory. John chapter 17, verse Jesus is talking with the Father. He's praying and he says, God, I want them to see my glory, the glory that I had with you before the foundations of the world. You see, one commentator sums it up this way. Moses and Elijah were recognized as the supreme representatives of the law and the prophets of Israel. And here they were in a vision talking with Jesus who had come to fulfill what the law and the prophets had looked forward to. See, Elijah proclaimed God's glory after he encountered it on the mountain in 1 Kings 19. And Moses reflected God's glory after he met with him in, in Exodus chapter 33. But Jesus this morning radiates the glory of God before the Father even speaks because Jesus is the glorious God himself. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 describes Jesus this way. It says he is the radiance of God's glory he is the exact representation of his being. As Tim Keller notes, he says, Jesus does not point to the glory of God as Elijah or Moses or every other prophet had done. Jesus is the glory of God in human form. You see, this morning, it is so important that we see Jesus' divine glory that we see that he is glorious. You see, there is no one like Jesus in all the universe. There is, he alone is the one worthy of honor and praise and adoration. You see, he alone is the glorious triumphant king who has come to defeat Satan and sin and death. You see, there is none like him. You see, and the truth is, is that we want to be the king of glory. We live that way all the time. We live as though this world and these people and this, this stuff and these situations, that it's all about us. You see, but the truth is, is that it's not. 
You see, you and I, we are not the king of glory. Jesus is. And unless we see him as the glorious, ruling, and reigning king that he is, we will never understand what it means to embrace him and follow him. You see, because following Jesus begins by bowing your knee at his great authority. You see, following Jesus begins in a humble surrender that comes from seeing him for the glorious king that he is and the glorious king that you and I are not. You see, King Jesus is the promised king of glory. There is none like him. And the invitation is that we might see him and bend our knee and worship to him. And so the disciples are there on the mountaintop, and, and they don't just see the reflection of God's glory in Jesus. They see the glorious God himself. But what stands out in contrast between this encounter with God's glory and the ones in the Old Testament is that the disciples don't just see God's glory, it's that they see it and they don't die. That's the very thing God said would happen if you encountered God's glory. So the reason Moses couldn't see it, and so the question is why? What, what makes that possible? And that brings us to the second thing that we need to behold about Jesus if we're going to understand and embrace what it means to follow him, is that he's not just the high king of glory, he is the humble servant king. You see, and it's what Jesus had come to do as the suffering servant that makes the sight of his transfiguration possible. See, the passage begins and it ends with Jesus talking about the suffering and death that was impending. Chapter 16, verse 21 reads this way, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. And in chapter 17, verse 12, the, the passage ends, Jesus tells the disciples that just like John the Baptist suffered, so would he suffer. You see, in the prospect of a Messiah suffering and being rejected and killed would have been almost impossible for a Jew to comprehend. You see, the Messiah was supposed to be the one who would come and fulfill Israel's history and set up God's everlasting kingdom. He was, he was supposed to overthrow oppressive governments, not be overcome by one. He was supposed to be utterly victorious, not beaten and betrayed unto death. <clears throat> he was supposed to defeat evil, not be overcome by it. But the truth was that the view of the Messiah that the Israelites had, it was incomplete at best. <clears throat> One commentator, he writes it this way. He says their view was too small, too nationalistic, too materialistic, and too earthbound. You see, the, the Israelites, they needed a savior. We all do. But not one who would simply rescue us from our situations. Not one who would rescue us from an oppressive governmental power. We need a savior who would rescue us from the greater power of Satan and sin and death. You see, just like God's voice at Jesus' baptism and the Mount of Transfiguration had foreshadowed, you see, the, the salvation that the Messiah would bring, <coughs> it was going to come, it would involve him taking the role of the suffering servant. Isaiah 43 one of the four songs of servant songs of Isaiah foreshadows the kind of Messiah that Jesus would be. Foreshadows the, the Messiah that he would be a suffering servant who would, in verse 3, be despised and rejected by mankind, a man familiar with suffering and pain, who would, in verse 4, would take up our pain and bear our suffering, who would be cut off from the land of the living and be punished for the transgressions of his people. <coughs> 
he would be the Lord's, it would be the Lord's will to crush him and to cause him to suffer. And, and through him, the Lord would make his life an offering for sin. He would be pierced for our transgressions. He would be crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought him peace would be upon him. By his wounds, we would be healed. And after he had suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied by his knowledge. The righteous servant will justify many. See, that's the kind of king that Isaiah prophesied the Messiah would be. Not just the king of glory, but the suffering servant who would come to rescue his people. <clears throat> you see, Matthew is calling us to behold Jesus for who he truly is. See, he's not just the high king of glory. He is the humble servant king who has come to suffer the penalty of sin for us so that we might be cleansed from sin and be able to be with the glorious God himself. You see, Jesus bridges the impossible gap between God's righteous holiness and humanity's sinfulness because what he does is he cleanses us so that instead of being crushed by the utter holiness of God, we might be brought into it. You see, it is so important that you see Jesus as the suffering servant as the humble king. You see, if Jesus is just the king of glory, you can know his overwhelming power, but because he is the servant king, you can know his unending loving kindness. You see, if Jesus is just the king of glory, then you should run from him because of your sin, but because he is also the suffering servant who has suffered for you, you can run to him with your sin so that you might be cleansed. You see, if Jesus is just the king of glory, you will think God only wants joy and blessings for his people, but because Jesus is the humble suffering servant, we can make sense of the pain and the problems in life, knowing that the, the king who has come to rescue us has suffered himself. You see, if Jesus is just the high king of glory, there is no hope or joy or life. There's only fear. But because he is also the humble servant king who suffered and died for you, there is unending joy. There is immeasurable blessing, even in the midst of pain. You see, what Matthew is doing for us this morning is he's inviting us to behold Jesus to see him as the glorious king and the promised suffering servant. <clears throat> and the reality is this morning is that the degree to which you see him as both of those things will be the degree to which you understand what it actually means to follow him and the degree to which you will be willing to embrace what that actually means to follow him. You see, following Jesus requires that you understand his glory and in suffering for you first. You see, following Jesus begins by surrendering to him as the king of glory and by faith receiving, accepting the suffering that he suffered for you in your place as he paid the penalty of sin that you deserve to pay. But following Jesus requires that we understand and embrace his glory and his suffering in you as well. You see, Jesus is the promised messianic king, the salvation of all people. And he has come to defeat Satan and sin and death. He has come to defeat evil, but the path was not through a throne. You see, the path was through a cross. And at the end of chapter 16, what we see Jesus saying is that if you want to follow him, then you're going to need to go to the cross too. 1624 reads this way then jesus said to his disciples whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves take up their cross and follow me for whoever wants to save their life will lose it but whoever loses their life for me will find it 
See that phrase, take up your cross. Jesus is talking there about the idea of dying to self. You see, there can only be one king on the throne, and you will either sit on the throne of your own life or Jesus will. And if you are on the throne, then this world is about you. Or Jesus will be on the throne, and it will be about him. There are only two options. You see, and so Jesus invites us this morning. If we're going to follow him, it will mean us going to the cross too. It will mean us putting to death the, the desire for, our king of, for us to be the king of glory in our own lives. <clears throat> you see, it is a costly death, but there is joy in it. You see, we don't want to embrace suffering. We want glory now. That's what we all want. Peter, Peter wanted that too. He, he loved this glorious view of Jesus that he got. That's why he offered to put up some shelters and try to prolong that experience as long as he could. And that's the same reason why, Jesus couldn't fa- why Peter couldn't fathom Jesus being the suffering servant. And it didn't fit his agenda, and which is why he rebuked Jesus when he heard about his suffering. Jesus, this should never be. It could never happen to you. See, one commentator, he puts it this way. He says, then as now, the followers of Jesus have been very slow to accept the the necessity of sacrifice and suffering. You see, those who seek to have life on their own terms will lose it. But those who are prepared to sacrifice even their own lives will find it. You see, this dying to self makes possible the radical love and service that are the essence of discipleship. I need you to hear that. You see, it is this dying to self that makes possible the radical love and service that are at the heart, that are the essence of discipleship. You see, you can never actually follow Jesus if you are still the king on your own throne. Taking up the cross, death to self-interest, it was far from Peter's mind when he proclaimed that Jesus was the Messiah. And Jesus clarifies for him, Jesus redefines for him what it really means to be the messianic king, what it really means to be a follower of his. You see, there's this lie so prevalent in our world today that God exists for you, that if you actually just had enough faith, you would just receive blessings on blessings on blessings. Man, the truth is you worship a king who who went to a cross. And so to believe that that suffering is out of line with God's will and his purposes in your life is to fundamentally ignore the very king that you worship. You see, but the good news is that even though none of us want suffering, Jesus shows us that the path to glory, the path to joy, the path to actual life, it involves sacrifice and suffering. You see, we want a Savior who is going to rescue us from suffering. But Jesus is the Savior who both rescues us and renews us through suffering. First Peter 1, verses 6-9, it reads this way, In all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. <coughs> These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise and glory and honor when Jesus is revealed. You see, though you have not seen him, you have loved him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy, for you are receiving the end result of your faith, which is the salvation of your soul. You see, we all want that glorious mountaintop experience. We want to see Jesus in his glory. It's not wrong to want that. 
But what Matthew is reminding us, he's wanting to help us see this morning, is that the way you enjoy Jesus' glory is not by avoiding suffering. It's not by avoiding sacrifice at all costs. It's not the absence of sacrifice. It's not the avoidance of suffering that joy and meaning and purpose are found. It's through those things that we grow and that we mature, that we, that we have life. Romans chapter 8, verse 17 says this, Now if we are children of God, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs of Christ. For if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we might also share in his glory. You see, I just, don't, don't mishear me this morning. I'm not trying to tell you that you should go seek out suffering, that you should go seek out trials in your life. I'm, I'm not advocating that you just go looking for a hard life. But I'm saying this morning that if you are trying to do everything you can to avoid it, you are going to miss out on the better comfort and the better joy that Jesus has to offer you. 2 Corinthians 1.5 reads this way, For just as we share abundantly in the sufferings of Christ, so also our comfort abounds in him. Hebrews 12, speaking of Jesus, says we must fix our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer, perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame. So consider him who suffered and endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. You see, to believe that a life following Jesus is a life, is a life absent of suffering is to ignore the king you worship and his very word. I have to be honest with you this week. I feel like God was really just convicting my heart about that. And the more that I studied this week, the more that I realized how much I do to avoid suffering and pain. You see, I, I put myself in situations and I safeguard myself from people or whatever situations it might be so that I might avoid some of that pain. I, I keep my safeguard myself from certain responsibilities or from certain situations so that I can avoid that sense of, of pain and suffering. And I, don't, I just don't want it. You see, and what Jesus is inviting us into this morning is that if we're going to follow him, if we're going to have the joy of following him, then avoiding all sacrifice and avoiding suffering is not the way to actually enjoy him. It's not that we're meant to pursue it. But if we give our lives to avoiding it at all costs, we are going to miss the joy of following him in it. You see, Hebrews 12 again says, For the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross. See, what is the joy that is set before you that might cause you to endure sacrifice and suffering for the king that you worship? See, in communion, what we're doing is we're remembering. We are considering, as Hebrews 12 tells us to do, what Jesus has done for us. You see, for the joy set before him, he endured the pain and the death of death, suffering the penalty of sin. His body was broken and his blood was shed so that you and I might be cleansed and able to enjoy his glorious presence forever. You see, communion, it doesn't make you right with God. It doesn't save you. Only faith in Jesus can do that. Instead, communion is a chance for us to remember and to consider and to set our eyes to behold the king who has come for us, to behold our high king of glory and our humble suffering servant. You see, at River City, the bread and the juice are in the back. There's a table on the left and on the right. And during our time of worship at the end here this morning, you can go back and you dip the bread in the juice, and that's how you take communion here. No one's going to dismiss you. You just go as you feel led. You don't need to be a member here at River City. You just need to belong to Jesus. The question this morning, is he your high, glorious king? 
Is he the one to whom you have bowed your knee? But is he also your suffering servant? Not just the one to whom you surrender, but the one to whom you receive grace and mercy from. You see, what we celebrate in communion is that Jesus is both. He's the high king of glory who has come to suffer so that we might be made right with him. See, as you take communion this week, as we sing together, I'd invite you to talk with God. What about him do you need to behold more clearly? Maybe for you this morning there was a reminder that you needed to behold, you needed to be see, you needed to see him more clearly as the glorious king that he is. For you, Jesus is inviting you to bend your knee to his authority, to surrender your life and your decisions and your purposes to him, that he might be the king who sits on the throne instead of you. And you need to see him as the king of glory so that you might respond to him rightly. For some of you, you might need to see him as the suffering servant. When you think about God, you're filled with fear and doubt and worry. You wonder if you have done enough or if you are enough. And I just need you to hear this. You're not. You haven't done enough and you aren't enough. But Jesus is. And he is the suffering servant who has suffered the penalty of your sin for you. And what he has done is sufficient, complete, enough And so maybe this morning you need to see him not as the high king of glory, but you need to be reminded that he is the suffering servant for you. So that instead of running from God in fear, you might run to him with life and joy to be cleansed from sin because he is the only one that can do it. How is Jesus calling you to follow him? What will it look like for you to take up your cross and follow him? Where is Jesus inviting you this morning to lay down the pursuits of this world, to embrace his mission and his purposes and his glory instead of your mission and your purposes and your glory? You see, the question this morning is, what is keeping you from following Jesus into those things? The question I felt like I was wrestling with this week is, what what pain or suffering am I trying to avoid? What pain or suffering am I trying to avoid that's keeping me from following Jesus into the midst of the things he's inviting me into? Is it a relational suffering or a financial sacrifice? Maybe it's a social one. Maybe it's something in your career or in your family. See, whatever it is, Jesus is calling us that we might die to self and live for him. You see, in Hebrews 2 reminds us that it's not out of duty or obligation that he calls us to do it, but it's out of joy. Just weeks ago, we studied in Matthew 13 the parable of the, the, the treasure of the pearl. See, and to find the kingdom. And it's king. It's like finding a treasure that is worth giving everything to have. You see, if you don't see Jesus as the high king of glory and the humble suffering servant, you will never see him as the treasure that is worth giving everything to follow. You see, you need to see him as both. And this morning, Jesus is reminding us of who he is, that we might behold him, that we might see him, that we might look on him for who he really is so that we might become like him. For the joy set before us, let us endure the suffering. Let us endure the sacrifice that Jesus is calling us into so that we might enjoy him as the high king of glory and the humble king who has suffered for us. Let us pray. King Jesus, we come to you this morning. 
God, we just humbly say, we need you to help us see. God, by your, your Spirit's power, we need you to give us eyes to see who you really are. God, we need you to help us see that you are the high King of glory. There is none like you. God, and that we are called, beckoned, that we might bend our knee to your good authority. But Jesus, you are also the humble King who has suffered for us. And so, God, help us to see you as such so that we might not run from you but run towards you. God, thank you that you are worthy of every ounce of worship we could ever give, that you are the King of glory who has suffered for us. God, help us to see you rightly. God, for those who are here this morning who have not seen you as such, God, by your Spirit's power, would you graciously help them to see you in a new way? God, would you call them to bend their knee to your good authority and to receive your work on their behalf as you are the suffering servant for them? Jesus, that they might have life and joy and blessing that's found in you, that they might have a strength that actually enables them to walk through pain and sacrifice and suffering with you, the King who has done it for them. God, when we say we need you to help us see, we cannot see on, your, on our own. God, and for our good, but more than anything, for your glory that we might live as your people, heralding you, help us see. We pray these things in your good name. Amen.